Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that explores the many and varied reasons that people get hooked on this ridiculous game. My name's Rod Murray, and I'm your host on this journey into the minds and motivations of those for whom the love of this game is just that little bit more, for whom golf is more than a recreation or a pastime or even a job and is instead an essential part of who they are. Since launching this series last year, we've featured both professional players and administrators. But on this episode, we're going to bring those two worlds together when we meet ALPG CEO Karen Lunn. Since 2013, Lunn has been at the helm of the women's professional game here in Australia. But for the best part of 25 years before that, she was on the other side of the ropes as a competitor. Most will know and remember Lunn best for her win at the 1993 Women's British Open. And while that was no doubt a highlight, it was just one of 10 career victories in Europe. From her formative years in Cowra to the top of the European rankings and now to helping make the game better for the next generation, Lunn is one of Australian golf's great givers. I hope you enjoy this expansive and wide-ranging chat with one of our best, Karen Lunn. I guess the jumping off point, well, the first thing we have to do, Karen, is say thanks very much for taking the time to chat to us. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Ron. Happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, not many people say that, Karen. Most <laughs> <laughs> that do don't always mean it, but with you, I do believe it. The jumping off point for the podcast, it's called The Thing About Golf. So I like to ask mm-hmm. people to complete this sentence. The Thing About Golf is, finish that for me. The Thing About Golf is... Um it's the best. It's the best sport in the world. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's the only sport where you know grandkids can play alongside their grandparents. Um, yeah, I, I think it is the best sport in the world. I mean, I love all sports, but um, yeah, I think golf for, for a variety of reasons is the best sport in the world. Socially, um, you know, for exercise, yeah, a number of reasons, it's the best sport. We'll go all the way back to where it started for you, but before that, I wanted to ask you, as a professional. Does the relationship with golf change? Because all of those things you've just mentioned, they're very much of what I think about when I think about golf. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of recreational golf, really, isn't it? Is professional golf still all of those things or is it is it a different thing when you play professional? Yeah, no, it is different. And it does become a job or a profession, um, but one that I was fortunate enough to love, you know, every second I did. But no, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. It definitely changes when you're younger. Um, it's, a, it's a game and a sport, and mm-hmm. it's fun. And I'm not saying that it's not fun when it's, you know, you, you become a professional, but, it, you know, it very much becomes your life, um, you know, and, and it's sometimes you don't want to go practice. Sometimes you do want to go practice, but, you know, it's your job and you have to do it. Yeah. That it's your life is a real theme of people who've been on the show. At some point, I think almost every guest guest has used that term, it's your life. Yeah. Uh, um, is it different to other sports or pursuits? Is golf more all-encompassing, do you think, for those of us who have the affliction? Not everybody gets it. Some people try golf and don't like it. But do you think mm-hmm. that those who are into it are more into it than those who are into other sports are into their sport? Or am I imagining that? Um, it's a really good question, actually. Um, you know, I mean, I've got friends that are my age now that, that love their tennis. They love their surfing. They love their, their walking club. Um, you know, they're passionate about it. So I wouldn't say... I don't, I don't know. That's no. the answer, I guess. Um, but I think that people that love golf, like yourself, you know, and I know from our conversations in the past, you're, you're a very passionate golfer. You love the sport. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I've bored you at least as much as anybody else in Australia, Karen. You'll be pleased to know. You're near the top of the list <laughs> no, for no, those who've had to endure my, <laughs> good, good questions. My, uh, my golf conversation. Let's go all the way back. I did what I, what I call research, Karen, before we spoke. I went onto Wikipedia this morning, and okay. it told me on Wikipedia that you were born in Sydney. I always thought you were born in Cowra. No, I was born in Liverpool Hospital in Sydney. My, mm-hmm. my parents lived in the western suburbs of Sydney and my grandparents as well. Um, so all my family, most of my family is still in Sydney. So um, we moved out to Cowra when I was, uh, I think I was seven. Uh-huh. So, you know, all of my, most of my life I can remember has been in Cowra. So, you Do you know, consider yourself a, a Cowra girl or a Liverpool girl? Um. I guess I'm a, a Western Suburbs girl when it comes to footy. I'm a mad <laughs> West Tigers fan, unfortunately for me. Uh, but no, definitely a Cara girl. Like, you know, all of my adult life was there, my schooling, you know, I started golf, my friends. Um, yeah, so very much a Cara girl. And, and you know, I, I feel very fortunate to have grown up in the country and perhaps wouldn't have had the opportunities in, in golf that I that I did if I had, a, you know, if we had a stay in Sydney. Yeah. The wonders of technology have, have- have hastened this conversation along a bit, Karen. I just saw Marty Lund wander into the room there and grab something I wanted to ask you. <laughs> yeah. She snuck in and snuck out. You didn't get to see it. We, of course, have got the camera nice. on. People yep. won't get to see what I'm seeing. Uh, Marty, of course, also a professional golfer, the two of your sisters. Talk about that relationship. Was it uh, competitive and adversarial? Was it competitive and supportive? Was it a bit of both along the way at various times? You both became professional golfers. And I would imagine from a small place like Cowra, you would have had some some celebrity in town, particularly as the two of you gained more success, both winners at the professional level. I imagine the pride of Cowra in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, you know, on a... On a on a tiny level that, um, you know, being a famous person, I guess, <laughs> resonates with, with, with Marty and myself, you know, being from Cowra. Like, you know, it was hard to walk down the street without people chatting to you about, you know, how are you going? And, and that was great. You know, it's, it was never an issue. But um, a small country town, everyone knows everyone's business anyway. So, yeah, perhaps we were kind of, you know, celebrities in, in Cowra. But, you know, it was great having, you know, my sister pretty much with me my whole career. And I wouldn't say competitive at all. I think supportive, definitely. Um You've probably heard, you know, from the other guests, obviously it's a pretty tough life um, being away from most of your family and friends and support network and, and it was certainly very different when I, when we started. Um, you know, if you phoned your parents sort of once every couple of weeks or, you know, your friends, you'd maybe write a letter to, which is almost unheard of <laughs> these days. Um, so just having that support and, you know, somebody that, that really did care how you were going and how you played, we, we, I think we're both, you know, really fortunate. What about being in a small town? I've often thought that there's a there's a real difference, particularly in Australia, culturally, between growing up in a city and growing up in a place like Cowra. For those outside of Australia, Cowra's not tiny, tiny, tiny. It's not like 200 people, but it's not a big place, is it? So what sort of size town in it and is it? And tell us a little bit about that because that's what shapes people, isn't it? Where you grow up yep. and who you grow up with shapes you. So how did Cowra sort of shape you and, and what were the influences there? Yeah, um... That's another really good question. I think, that, again, I feel really fortunate to have grown up in the country. I think that Cowra, I think when I grew up, was a town of around about 5,000 people, 6,000 people maybe. So, you know, a reasonably big town. Um, I think also my parents, even though they were from the western suburbs of Sydney, back then the western suburbs of Sydney was like the country. Rude, so they weren't like yeah. city folk, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very much down-to-earth, hardworking, um, almost like blue-collar western you know, Western suburbs people. So um, I, we had a really good grounding. Um, you know, our parents were incredibly supportive, but but certainly um, fairly strict in what we could do and what we couldn't do. Um, but, but just like I said, having the opportunities, you know, in a country town growing up, 
it's all about sport. You know, both Marty and myself. Marty was a great basketball player. She actually played state basketball. Um, we were both good swimmers. You know, we both played hockey. We played netball, um, tennis, golf. You know, pretty much. I even played rugby league with the boys and cricket with the boys because I loved both the sports so much. So, and there was no opportunities back there, to, you know, to compete with the girls. So, um, yeah, it was just all about sports. So you, you've, you're very much sheltered from some of the the things that happen um, to kids growing up in the cities. Like, you know, I feel a bit, you know, I was very naive when I turned pro and went away at, you know, 18 years of old, but 18 years of age. But you know, I, I hadn't heard. You know, I knew people smoked cigarettes and had the odd beer or whatever. But you know, we 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 were never subject to drugs or um, or those kind of things growing up in the country. So, you know, it was just, I want to say it's like a pure, a pure lifestyle. It was just, you know, growing up sport, um, school and, and just having fun, you know. So I'm very grateful for, for having the childhood that I did. What prompted the move to Cowra? Um, my dad and his brother, um, they actually owned a service station um, in um, Canley Heights in Sydney and, and they were both motor mechanics. Um, and an opportunity came up in Cowra uh, for them to buy some school bus runs. Um, they decided that it, they wanted their kids to have an opportunity to grow up in the country and maybe just try a different kind of, you know, slower-paced lifestyle. And, and I think that it was a great move. Obviously, you know, they, they both enjoyed it. Um, and, and obviously they, you know, my two cousins that grew up in Cowra, one of them is actually um, Robin, who's now Beecher, who's Brad Beecher, who caddies for Enby Parks, um, uh, Robin's son, Brad. So, you know, the, Brad is another Cara boy. He was actually born in Cara. But, yeah, so, so they and, and us as well benefited, I think, from from those country, um, you know, growing up in the country. Like I said, I you know, feel so grateful for that. How did Cara cope with a tribe of Luns suddenly landing in the joint back in the late 60s, yeah. early 70s out of out of Western Sydney? Culture yeah, shock yeah. on both I mean, sides, I would think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, my dad was a very social person and he slotted into that sort of country life very easily. And my mum actually drove one of the school buses herself as well. Um, and my uncle drove the other one. So, yeah, it, it was great. They, they drove the school bus in the morning and the afternoon and then they were there for us to do whatever and, and Dad got bored so he took up another job in one of the petrol stations working with one of his mates there. So, you know, we were lucky Mum was always there and she was forever running us around to all different sporting events until we are old enough to drive. So, yeah, like I said, you know, just we, we had a great childhood. Yeah. I touched on this with Kari as well, your dad being a mechanic. Her dad was a builder. It's very honest work, mm-hmm. isn't it? Very sort of tradies and yeah. usually early stuff. Arts, ladies finish, lots of hard physical labour. What impact does that have on you growing up? Do you know what your dad does? Are you aware of that? My dad was not a mechanic. He was in the mechanical business. He was he had a tyre shop and it's proper hard work and you watch that your whole life, I think, and you go on to do something different. I've worked in offices mostly. I did do a stint at the workshop, but you appreciate later in life, I think, the realities of what those sorts of jobs mean and what they, what they are, don't they? Does, do you feel that and do you ever reflect on that? You would have seen very, a very different very much so. world to what your dad grew up in, living in England and <laughs> travelling around the world playing yeah, golf. Yeah, absolutely. But but as I said, we had a, a really good grounding and, and um, you know, both of my parents obviously worked and mum driving a school bus, it's, you know, it was it was very different to what most mm-hmm. women, <clears throat> excuse me, back in that era did. But, 
you know, I guess they instilled those values in us from a very early age. You know, we had our pocket money. Um, we had to work for that, um, you know, whether it was doing chores around the house or in the garden. Um, you know, if we wanted to buy, you know, I started off, I bought a, um, a very basic set of golf clubs once I became hooked on it. And then I had to save up to buy, I had, a, I think, a three, five, seven, and nine iron. And, and then I had to buy all the other irons to go with the set. So that was, you know, I think that instilled in me that, you know, you had to work, you know, for anything you got in life. You know, we we were... We were, we were, I would say we were spoiled in that we had so much support from our parents, but we certainly weren't weren't spoiled, um, you know, in that in that fashion. And and I think understand understood the value of money and hard work from an early age. There's a temptation for all of us. We get to a certain age, and it's true of generations before, and it'll be true of generations in the future. You look at today's young people, particularly in professional golf, and you can't help but see what looks like a sense of entitlement, the opposite of what you're talking about. Are we right about that or are we just grumbling old people who are – do you think that's changed? I would imagine that's held you in very good stead over the years, as I think it has Kari. Yeah, I think so too. And it is it's such a fine line um, between giving the young golfers or, or young people the support they need um, and, and spoiling them and, and so they don't actually understand, you know, how it all happens. Um, when I decided I wanted to, to turn pro um, – you know, my dad's just like, well, you know, how are you going to fund this? And, you know, my, th- my dad worked hard and they had some money put away, but he's just like, well, no, you know, when I bought my first business, we had to, you know, my, his mum put up the house as collateral for the business and he said, look, I'll do the same. He said, we'll we'll back you, but, you know, it's got to be your, your money and your your decision. So um, he, he marched me down the bank, the Westpac Bank in Cowra, and we sat down with the bank manager and I borrowed $10,000 and back then I think the interest rates were about 20%. <laughs> Uh, so I had to had to make sure I could pay that back, but you know, Dad went, you know, guarantor, and Mum and Dad went guarantor on my loan, and 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 that was it. And you know, when you're amateurs in those days, you got you got you know some of your expenses paid here and there, but it wasn't like it is now. So, um, you know, I think that the support the girls get now, and you look at the the um, the rookie program that Golf Australia do, and you know, someone like Hannah Green's a great example. She went through their high performance programs. Um, she turned pro, she was straight in the rookie squad. So she gets all the funding to, you know, provide her with coaching, you know, physio, whatever she needs, which is absolutely fantastic because that gives her the best opportunity to make the most out of her career. And, and Hannah's probably not a great example she, because no, she, she is such a, a grounded, yeah. um, sensible young person. And, and I've never once seen her um, or thought, you know, she was entitled um, I think she's appreciated everything that she's got, and obviously that's helped her become the golfer that she is today. Um, but you do see some that um, that you know get all of that help, and all of a sudden it's just too easy. And then when you do become a pro, not everyone gets those rookie scholarships, so you get all of this um, support when you're an amateur. You go through, you play all of these tournaments, and you've got people doing everything for you. And then if you're not good enough to make that rookie program, and you want to turn pro, you're on your own pretty much. Um, and I think that's where it becomes difficult, um, where you get that support as an amateur and all of a sudden you're on your own. Oh, my God, what do I do? I've never booked a flight or booked hotels. And, and where's that airport near that tournament? Because I have not, you know, no idea. So um, and I think that's another part. That's where the mentoring from the, the more senior players comes in to help the younger players that don't have that support. But, you know, you look at Hannah and Minji and Sue, uh, who are probably the three examples that, uh, that have received the most support in recent years. And there's no doubt, you know, Minji's one of the greatest players in the world. Um, Hannah's won a major and is in the top 20 in the world now and Sue is is probably just on the 
I guess, on the precipice of just taking that next step, perhaps winning or um, on the LPGA tour. So, you know, that helps been great for them. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's they're making so much money now. It's just, you know, from a financial point, it's very easy. Um, they don't have to worry about money from the first couple of years in their career, whereas back when I started, um, and I'm sure the guys that you've interviewed – you know, and, and maybe Curry will tell you the same thing that, you know, the amount of money you make, you, you're never comfortable. You know, you never, you, uh, Curry's not a great example. Either, but, um, <laughs> you're really, you're not, you're not going great here, are you, Karen? No, no. But I mean, she's not a great example. But, you know, in the first year of her career or so, I know that she didn't have a lot of money. She had some backing, but, um, and some savings and, and everything. But, you know, you don't make enough money to think, oh, well, I'm right now for three years. I can plan it properly. I can have a caddy every week. I can do things to give me the best opportunity to play my best golf. We didn't have that back then. It was pretty much living week to week, month to month, especially in women's golf, uh, month to month, year to year, really. It was just, you know, you sat down at the end of the year and you're like, oh, how would I go this year? Oh, well, <laughs> got a couple of grand to start me off next year. I'll be right, you know. And, and I think you had to back yourself back then. You know, I hear some of the, the younger players that – um, you know, I won't mention any names, but some of the girls who I think have got a lot of talent that have either given up um, or, oh, I don't know if I'll be able to play next year because I don't have a sponsor. You know, I was just like, well, you just, if you want it badly enough, you'll find a way to do it. You know, and I've said to a few of the girls, well, you know, and maybe it's not that responsible of me to say this, but that's what credit cards are for. You know, I can't tell you how many times that I was deep, deep into credit cards in my career, you know, but I believed in myself and I wanted it so badly that I made it work. You know, and I think that that's probably something that doesn't happen very often um, these days. So I think when you say that, that just to go back, what an enormous responsibility you take on when your dad puts up his house as collateral to go guarantor for you to start your career. And I'm sure you didn't take that lightly. And if you did, I'm sure you realised in later years that that's not something mm-hmm. to be taken lightly. And I wonder whether what you're talking about there, that, well, that's what credit cards are for, is that learned or are you born with that? Because there's a value to both, isn't it? There's a value to the support that you're talking about the players getting, but there's a downside to it as well. When it's too easy and it's too comfortable, who knows whether we see players realise their full potential when they haven't had to work to get there. Yeah, no, I think it's a really really valid point. And, you know, you um, you see some players and it's just like, oh, you know, I finished third in that major last week oh that was a good tournament you know you can never you can never um be disappointed about finishing third in a major well yeah no you should be because you had a chance to win and you didn't you know so it does I, th- I think that for for me and I was fortunate enough to win a few tournaments but it was over a long period of time but you know if you didn't if you had a chance to win and you didn't win you know it was kind of throw the the shoes around the locker room you know it was just like you you need that bit of mongrel in you um, you need to care enough. It's not about making a living. It's, you know, for me, it was just about winning. And that's all I cared about. You know, if you came second, that's first loser. That's no good. You know, yeah, you might have a nice check that we, which might keep you going for another few months. And that's lovely. But, you know, it's, it's about winning. And I don't see that mongrel in many of the young players now. I see a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of comfort. You know, it's just, yeah, no, I had a good week in that major. No, you didn't win it. You, know, you had a chance to win. At least show show me that you care. Show me that that means more to you than the couple of hundred thousand dollars you got for coming third. You know, so I think I think that's that's where I see it. I, I don't see that mongrel. 
Um, I see it in a few of our young players, uh, but I don't see it in enough of them, I don't think. Mm. It doesn't have to be outward necessarily, does it? It doesn't have to be cocky or brash no, or arrogant. No, it doesn't. No, no, no. It, there's nothing wrong with that when it is. I mean, it can be a bit divisive. Not everybody likes that, but there's nothing wrong with people no. who are clearly competitive. Hannah's as competitive yeah. as the next person, but you won't meet a nicer person in the world Absolutely. than yeah. Hannah. And I, and I don't mean that. No, no, you know, I get that. Throwing things but, around the locker room, but I mean, you know, just showing oh, I reckon you do, disappointment. Karen. You've thrown shoes around the locker room, haven't you? You can admit I've, it I've now. seen a lot of great players throw shoes around the locker room. I, rem- I remember I came off the course in Portland one day and Meg Mallon had three-putted the last hole um, uh, to lose, I think, by one shot. And and being Mallon, M-A, my locker and Marty's locker was always next to Meg. So, you know, I came, walked in the locker room and, you know, I don't know what I was thinking, but all of a sudden there are literally shoes <laughs> being thrown around the locker room. And, and people like Meg, you know, she was a great champion and, and, it, and it showed me how much it meant to win. Um, and, and I think with Curry as well, you know, winning was everything to her. And obviously she won a lot. Um, she wasn't as disappointed as often as, as we all were, but, you know, it was it was all about winning for her. Um, you know, second was just no good. And, and I think that that's, that's probably the thing that's changed. And like I said, you see it in a few of our young players, but to me, and who am I to criticise our young players? You know, they're great. They're great young players. And perhaps I, got, I had it all wrong. Um, but is I it criticism like though, Karen? I don't know if it's criticism. Or, is it criticism it's or just, just an observation, no, really? Not. I mean, it's just probably a, you know, an observation. People are allowed to be sort of different. You mentioned winning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ten times on the ladies' European tour, 16 times overall, according to Wikipedia. There's about the yep. extent of my research. What's winning like? Yep. You're as If you're as devoted to doing it as what you are, and I think Kari the same, the money's a secondary thing. Yep. You need it, obviously, and no doubt you yeah, think a lot about it, but when it's time to play golf, you play golf and you play golf to win. What's it like? Is it satisfying? Does it make you want more? Is it is it a bit like a drug? Ultimately, the more of you get, the more you want. You can never be satisfied with it. What's it like to win a golf tournament? Yeah. You've devoted your life to it. Yeah, I mean, it's just a it's a great sense of satisfaction, and and I think that one of the things I'm most proud about my career is that I won in 1986 when I think I was what 20 years old, and then I won in 2000 and was it 2012? I think 2012, was my last win. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think to 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 have that longevity, and I had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of injuries, you know, especially from sort of 2000 onwards, um, you know, so the the, the the early wins were like, oh, great, you know, cool. Oh. I've won things as an amateur. I'm how hard can it be? That's right. Time. You just you win. Know, how hard can it be? You know, I just won here in the second year. But but obviously you do have a lot of peaks and troughs and, um, you know, I lost my dad in and Marty and I lost our dad in nineteen ninety six very suddenly and, and that's that really set us back, you know, in, in many ways. Obviously we had to come home and, and take care of mum and then she sort of travelled around the world with us for, for twenty years after that. So um and then like I said, I've had injuries. So it is, you know, it's peaks and troughs and I guess that that makes the, the winning even more special. Um but it is just to know that you you know, and I don't know if people have spoken to you that about this but you know, the nerves involved in winning and the pressures of, of going down the stretch, I guess it must be a bit addictive because, you know, the feelings that, you know, sometimes you feel like your hands are shaking so much on the putter that everyone's going to laugh at you. But obviously they can't see that, but you feel that and you know how hard it is to deal with that. So actually to to come through and win when, you, when you're feeling all that pressure, it is, it's a great sense of satisfaction, definitely. I think Tiger would sum that up for me, but I, of course, have never felt that. There's not that much pressure in the Wednesday comp at Mangrove Mountain, that even when you've got the puck to win, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be quite so much pressure. But he said, when there's so much pressure that your eyeballs are sweating, 
that's when you know you're alive. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly. a, it probably sort of sort of sums it up. How do you deal with what, what separates people then at that level? Obviously, you've got to have a – from the outside, it seems, you've got to have a certain level of physical talent. I think I wrote about this last week. Peter Senior said it to me once. It's not about your good golf at the top level. It's about your bad. Everybody on their yeah. good day shoots 63. 100%. It's the people yep. who turn 75 into 72 and 70. Yep. They're the ones who go on to be the great – players what does separate people at that top level it's not just physical surely no 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 i mean i mean i'd say the difference between finishing second and winning i'd, I'd say could be a bounce yeah you need a, you need a bit of luck yeah you know for sure when you win you know those putts that normally would lip out or lip in you know you need you need a bit of luck on your side when you win um but i think you also need to have some strategies to deal with those nerves and those feelings of oh my god i'm gonna throw up on this tee you know it's, it's actually it's actually understanding how you deal with that. And you see people that go through their career and, and they have chances to win and they just don't get it done. And it's heartbreaking because you think, oh, God, they never get to experience that that feeling. But, there's, you know, sometimes it just they just can't deal with the pressure. And, you know, whether that's, you know, perhaps they didn't have the right training or perhaps they just didn't find the answer because there's so many answers out there. If you, if you look at sports psychology books and golf psychology books, and trust me, I've read all of them, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's so many different opinions and so many, uh, you know, and, and I've, I've picked out all the bits that resonated with me and I felt related to, to my personality and how I felt and, and worked out the ways to deal with those, um, those situations. So, um, yeah, it's it, most of it is mental. Like I said, the difference between winning and coming second is is very little about golf. No, well, that's right. But second and fifteenth, there's clearly a difference. Yeah. They're, they're too yeah, different. But yeah. if you're in the top five, I reckon in most golf tournaments, obviously the one last week where Dustin played one tournament and everybody else played something yeah, else, sure. that's a yeah. different thing. But most weeks, if you're in the top five to ten, you know you've you've, you've been in with a show at some point. It's an yeah, interesting absolutely. game, isn't it? It's yeah. it's so individual in so many ways, including that, Karen. What works for you mentally and physically won't work for somebody else. Laura Davies' schedule would have been horrendous for Kari Webb. And she would have been a terrible golfer if she'd done what Laura did. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the the issue is you can't know, and nobody can help you with it. You've got to work that stuff out for yourself, no matter who you are. Tiger knows what yeah. works for him. Jason Day knows what works for him, and they're two completely different things, and they can't yeah. be and the same, people, can they? Some people never work it out. To be honest with you, it's just um, you know, there's there's all you know, there's a thought that you know you have to be this incredibly hard worker, and you have to be out on the range grinding it, and you know, it, and, and some people just do it because the bloke next to you is doing it or the girl next to you is doing it. So if I'm going to beat them, I've got to do it. But you, you're 100% right. And, and you know, there's a school of thought that says, well, if Laura had have worked a bit harder, she might have won so many more tournaments, you know, so maybe she would have won less. Nobody will ever know. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, Annika Sorenstam was obviously far and away the best player in the world, Um during her era and you know Kari was a great player too but Annika just sort of I guess raised the bar in terms of um you know working on a fitness and everything but she was such a smart golfer um when you saw Annika she did all of her work away from tournament weeks Mm -hmm. um she didn't do like I did if I had a you know two weeks off I'd have one week off and and pretty much not touch a club and then gradually get back into it but when Annika was at a tournament she hardly ever practiced um, you very rarely saw her on the range. She'd go out, she'd do a practice round, she'd leave the golf course. She'd play a, a tournament round, and if she hit a couple of bad drives, you might see her hitting 10 drivers on the range or <clears throat> putting for 20 minutes. But she, she worked it out very early for herself, what she needed to do. And, and you, you, 
again, I think that a lot of players don't do that. They think there's these rules that you have to follow to be the best player in the world, and and that's what you have to do. But it, but it really isn't. Like you said, everyone's built differently. Everyone thinks differently. Everyone swings the club differently. And you know, Annika, she had one coach her whole life. Um, she was never searching for perfection, even though she probably had it, and maybe she knew that, so she didn't have to change. Um, but she she was such a smart golfer. Um, and I think that that's obviously what made her so good. But I, I do think that people need to, to be able to work out what works for them rather than the coach telling them what works or the sports psych telling them what works or, or someone else, the manager telling them what's work, what works. I'm reminded of something Jeff Ogilvie said, which was that everybody tries to copy the best. The best never copy anybody. That's true through history, yep. isn't it? And that Annick is a great Absolutely. example, isn't she? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, she was, you know, in a way before a time because she, like I said, she, she started the fitness regime before Tiger did, you know, she was just like, well, actually, no, you know, like nobody really ever thought like people would stretch and, you know, you see people in the locker room doing a few various things, but, but she brought the strength elements of women's golf. And obviously it's, you know, that's what it is about now. You look at Lexi and the quarter sisters and and all these girls are super super fit athletes before they even swing a golf club. Mm. We might talk about some of that uh, a little bit later on. When you turn professional, when you've been an amateur, and this is probably particularly true for you and Marty. You have this big fish, little pond, tiny fish in the ocean transition. What's that like to manage? I feel like that's a tripping up point for a lot of careers. We know lots and lots of good amateurs who disappear once they get to the professional ranks, and uh, mm-hmm. and that certainly plays a role, I would imagine. What was that transition like for you? It was probably less spotlight at the time, but I'm sure you would have felt it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember feeling like that. I think that I – when I, I guess because I was so young, you just, you know, it's such an adventure and a journey that you're going on. It's not, you don't probably really think of it like that. But I was one of the best amateurs in Australia, even though the selectors in the various teams didn't see me that way. Um, we'll I was talk, always we'll too young that. and yeah. didn't have enough experience. And Was that you know, the real reason? Then, sorry? Was that the real reason? Were you too young, didn't have enough experience, or was there something else going on there? We know that amateur oh. golf, full of politics. Yeah, 100%. And back then in the women's game, it was rife with politics. And, you know, I was always, I won't say outspoken, but, but again, I was very much my own person from a young age. So, you know, it was, again, these people telling, you know, with their orthopedic stockings and, and shooting sticks telling you what you should be doing. And it's just like, you know, well, I challenge them. Well, how do you know that that's what I should be doing? Mm-hmm. You know, because you saw someone else doing it. So I, I guess probably I did challenge the status quo at that time and perhaps that's that didn't help me but um yeah so you know I, I felt that I was one of the best amateurs in the country at that time and I I knew that I probably wasn't going to get chosen in any team so I'd, I'd looked at the potential of doing a college scholarship in the states um a good friend of mine um a few good friends of mine went on to do it but Lisa Ripkin who I played junior golf with um we actually won the Australian foursomes I think back in 1982 um, she went off to San Jose State University and, and was in the golf team there and loved it. And, yeah, I did a few phone hookups with, with them and talked about doing them. But but ultimately, I wanted to play pro golf now. <clears throat> That's what I decided I wanted to do. So, um, yeah, so I, I can't remember feeling like that, that small fish in a big pond. I think I had a bit of success early on. So I guess I, I soon became a big fish again. So I never really... I never really felt that, I don't think. Was the big pond smaller then, and did that help, yes. help in some ways? No, the big pond was much smaller then, absolutely, yeah. There was only probably 
70 or 80 players playing on the European Tour, uh, Women's Tour back then. So, yeah, absolutely. It was The pond was much smaller than it is now. Which prompts me to ask, when you were growing up in Cowra, who did you look to? Who were the inspirations for Karen and Marty Lund? Who were the golfers? What sort of access did you have? I mean, I know that television golf wasn't a regular thing in Australia really until pay TV came along. We only had yeah. sort of the four men's majors and yeah. the Australian exactly. summer. So who did you look up to? Were any of them women? And is that important? Um, Jan Stevenson definitely because she obviously got a lot of publicity back in Australia for other reasons, but she was still front and centre in terms of women's professional golf. But and, and I could guess play, my, Karen. Her, her, her yeah, playing resume is underrated because of some of that other stuff. A serious golfer. A hundred percent. But, you know, the sad facts are if, she, mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the other stuff, she probably wouldn't have even got, you know, wouldn't have even made the news here in Australia, which is, you know, luck, luck, luckily things have changed. But I guess, Not that much, um, but they have changed. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess uh, we were really lucky as as young amateurs to have some really good people to help us along the way. And um, Edwina Kennedy is still a great friend of mine and was a great mentor to so many of the, the good young players coming through. I know Rachel Hetherington looked up to Ed and, and Kari did as well. Um, she was almost like a superhero, like she was the first Australian woman to win the British Amateur Championship, um, played off something like plus six at the time. Wow. Um, people like her and Louise Bryce and Lindy Goggin were so kind to, to us young kids back then and, and they weren't, you know, jealous or, oh, my God, these kids coming up. They they were so um, giving of their time and advice and, and Andy's certainly someone that, was a great mentor and friend to me growing up. Um, she is obviously a very successful businesswoman as well, a super intelligent person. Um, so she, it was great to have people like her um, growing up. So, you know, she, someone like Ed, I would say that she was kind of my hero, even though she chose not to, to turn pro. She wanted – she had a career. Um, she wanted to have a family. So, you know, it wasn't – pro golf wasn't for her, but – you know, she was still, you know, one of the greatest ever golfers Australia's produced. So I guess we're lucky to have her. Um, like I said, watching the men's majors, we'd always get up in the middle of the night and, and watch those. I think Jack Nicholas was obviously um, a, a hero, and I remember having all of his books growing up. Um, and then obviously Greg um, a little bit later on. But but I'd say probably Jan and 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 Jack Nicholas and and Ed Kennedy were probably you know the ones for me that. Um, I looked up to and, you know, wanted to be like, I suppose. And where did you learn the technical skills required to have a successful professional career? Did you have a coach in Cowra? Did you learn out of Jack's books? Where did – because obviously you and Marty have both got talent, but that's really, as Matt Goggin once told us, it's just the entry fee, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Well, we were really fortunate in Cowra. A guy called Rick Lestrange, who Rick's now at Moore Park in Sydney. Um, He was a very, very good player in his own right, Um, an Aboriginal – his Aboriginal background. Um, He was the pro at Cowra, and Rick was fantastic with the juniors. Um, He was really encouraging. He'd spend as much time as you want. So um, he and a couple of other pros used to run some golf camps around the region, Um, Cowra, Bathurst, Orange. The kids had come from all around, so that's kind of – you know, we had lessons from Rick, then we go to the camps. So – that's as far back as Peter O'Malley and I go. We were at wow. some of those junior camps when we were sort of 13, 14 years old. Um, so just having someone like Rick who he was a very natural player himself, but um, he was a very, very good teacher. Um, and then obviously from there you go through. I, I, I was taught a little bit by um, the New South Wales coach at the time, um, John Sullivan, who unfortunately passed away quite a few years ago. Um, and then – spent some time with Charlie Earp and Norman Von Neider and, and played a lot of golf with them and, and sort of, you know, was 
I guess learned so much from from people like that in my career. So I feel very fortunate to have to have had you know Rick as a starting point, and then when I you know went away, obviously you know had some great coaches, and then a guy called Lawrence Farmer in the UK who who taught me for a number of years. So yeah, you know very fortunate to have had a lot of good people on my side. What are you learning at that level, Karen? You're not being shown how to grip the club and how to stand and get the weight on the. You're not doing the basics. What do you need a coach for when you're at that level? What what do they do? I think it is the basics. I think that you know, even if you look at professionals now playing, you know, if you can pick anyone playing on any tour, if if they if they're not playing well, it usually will come down to something very very simple like posture, you know, set up something like that. It's you know, your golf swing doesn't change that much overnight. So it is it is the basics. But for me, you know, Rick himself was a very good shot maker, and I also had some some really good amateurs in Cowra, Ray Picker, who was a great left-handed player who played for Australia in the Eisenhower Cup. Um, Chris Longley, who was a member at Cowra as well, he played for New South Wales and Australia. So um, we had some really good players in Cowra as well. And for me, it was just watching them hit shots. It wasn't and what they did with a golf ball. You know, I think from from a basics point of view, yes, Rick taught me that and some of the other coaches keep an eye on that. But, um, you know, get, having the opportunity to watch Ray and Chris, um, such great shot makers, and, you know, you don't see that so much anymore. And, and then with someone like, you know, Norman Von Eider and, and Charlie, you know, Norman Von Eider was just an absolute genius. And some of the – just watching him practice his short game and, and getting tips on that sort of stuff, it's just gold. I mean, it really is. So, it's, it, you know, it wasn't learning technique. It was just learning how to play the game, really, and watching, you know, how they hit these shots. And, you know, yeah, it's just it was fascinating. And even, you know, my, like I said, I mentioned my coach in the UK for a long time, Lawrence Farmer. You know, he, he could hit the ball over his head long before Phil Mickelson did. You know, so, again, it was for me it was always about, you know, learning different skills rather than, you know, technique. Uh There's a saying, real recognises real. I would love to have been a fly on the wall when you and the Von were out. He was a proper player. There's a different sort of respect, I think, amongst players who've played at the elite level because they know what's involved. For somebody like Von Neider, and certainly when he grew up, there would be a lot less technical discussion and knowledge about the golf swing. Does he learn golf a different way? And have we lost something by not learning golf some of those lessons in the more modern era where we rely much more on technology like track man and statistics and simple stuff like you said you're you know you like to be a shot maker knowing when to play the shot when's the time to hit that high draw or the low fade or whatever it might be some of that gets lost is it not in the statistical analysis of the modern game and what was it like to, to play with the von and just see the th- things that he would do Oh, yeah. I mean, I just I consider myself so fortunate to to have had those experiences and and to be able to call Vaughn a, a friend. You know, he was he was such a great man, and like I said, I was so fortunate to have played golf on many occasions with him and just learned so much. And you know, he was just like, and and you probably know that late in his his life, he was you know quite blind. Mm-hmm. And, but it was the sound. He mm-hmm. could tell where my ball had gone from the sound off the club. Um, and but I think technology's obviously changed incredibly since then but you know the golf balls changed um the clubs have changed it's not not as easy to hit those shots that you could hit back then if you're a good um, you player know, you try- it's still easy yeah. if you're a chopper to hit the big slice or the, the grubbers but yeah. if you're a good player it's much harder to make the ball do yeah. stuff isn't it, it actually it is, is absolutely yeah you know and, and like i said i 
um, in a way, you wish you had grown up with a little bit more technology to, you know, and, and had some of some of the stuff that the younger players have now. But then you think, oh, you know, you, you, you watch some of the, you know, I was fortunate enough to play golf with Christy O'Connor Jr. a few times and some of the great, you know, Sam Torrance. And, and you watch some of – Christy was an absolute genius. Um, he never hit – very rarely hit a straight shot. A little bit like Lee Trevino. You know, such a great ball striker, um, great feel, great hands. Um, and like I said, you, don't, you know, pe- people – I suppose Dustin Johnson isn't a great example either because you wouldn't teach someone to swing the club the way he does, but obviously he's incredibly successful. Um, but, you know, there's a, if you go along the driving range at a women's or men's events, you know, there's there's not many sort of different swings out there or different ways of doing it. It's pretty much, you know, again, you know, they've got their track man, they practice with that. And, you know, it's, it's a great aid. I, I don't think that it's a bad thing at all, but but certainly you don't see that many great, you know, like Kari's another example, a great, great shot maker. You don't yeah. see that that often. Instinctive golfer. Just know yeah, exactly. this is the shot to hit and, and then to hit it, and it's fantastic. Just to back up, a lot of people are sceptical about that Von Nider ability to tell you where the ball's gone despite the fact that he was legally blind, but you're confirming mm-hmm. that that's the case? He could tell 100%. whether it went left, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah. Not so much his shots, but he knew where my ball had gone, what shot shape. By, by just watching the swing and the sound. That's amazing, yeah, I mean, isn't quite it? often, quite often Von would hear a shot and he'd go, where'd that go, love? Um, but, <laughs> and you hit one and he'd go, oh, that's left. <laughs> yeah, but, but, with, but, with, um, but with my shots. And it always fascinated me to think, to watch him out of the bunkers. And obviously, you know, Gary Player will say that he learned a lot from Von, you know, how to play bunker shots. But and I always thought, you know, you can hardly even see the ball, yet he could play these, you know, mm. these incredible bunker shots. Um, but no, I mean, he's, he was just a genius and just a wonderful, wonderful man. And I, like I said, I consider myself so lucky to, to have spent the time that I did with him. Here's a question for you. Are we missing out on Norman? How can I put this? If Norman von Neider had been born a hundred years later and, and had access to the technology we have now, would he have become the same player or did he discover a player within on his own that wouldn't reveal itself if he'd been found early and coached? I heard somebody say once and it's probably true. If Dustin Johnson had been discovered early by most coaches, they would have fixed his left wrist and he'd be winning a club championship somewhere. Yeah, probably. I mean, that's a, you know, who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a such an unknown, isn't it's, it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, who knows? It's you know, even now though, you it's very rare with the guys. You do see some that you know they have a swing that's theirs. I'm just trying to think that Matt Wolf apart from Dustin obvious. Johnson, somebody Matt Wolf yeah, is an obvious one. Sorry? Matt Wolf is an obvious one. Ricky Fanning yeah, is an yeah, obvious exactly. one. But, you know, you go back to someone like a Craig Parry, you know, that was his style, his game. You know, he had his little fades and, and that was him and, you know, he made a lot of money doing it. And, um, yeah, that was his style and you don't see that that often anymore. Mm. It's but, just well, become such a power game in, in the men's and women's. We might come to that. It's a topic that always comes up on this show, which is probably yeah. my fault. But I think most golfers do have an opinion one way or another about the direction the game's going. And it it's, yeah. certainly seems to be bubbling a lot more than it used to, that conversation in the last sort of few years. Of course, Craig Parry's swing that would make Ben Hogan, Hogan puke, as Johnny Miller famously yeah. told yeah. us all those years ago. I think Craig had the last laugh in that one. Hello, Thing About Golf listeners, and apologies for barging in. I hope you're enjoying our chat with Karen Lum, but I do have a couple of quick messages that I do need to share. First, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't be afraid to share it. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. If you're a part of any of those networks and would like others to know what we're doing in this little corner of the web, please feel free to do so. 
Secondly, don't hesitate to get in touch. Whether it's a bouquet or a brickbat, we're open to any and all feedback. You can find us at golf at golfaustralia.com.au for email, or you can send me a direct message on Twitter via my handle at Rod underscore Mori. That's M for Mary, O-R-R-I. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can go on any of the podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts are the big three. Simply search for the show and press the subscribe button. If that all sounds too complicated, go directly to the webpage at golfaustralia.com.au forward slash the thing about golf. That's enough out of me. Now, back to Karen Lunn. If we accept that professional golf is entertainment, purely, it's more important to some of us golf, but it is essentially entertainment, is the game more entertaining or less entertaining or different entertaining in the modern era? Now, I know you've got the position with the ALPG, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's, there's, there's things to think about there. But broadly speaking, is it more, less, or just different? There seems to be less characters, although I, having said that, I now think about Matt Wolf and Phil Mickelson, mm. and yeah, the game's probably not actually short on characters. They're just different yeah. characters to Trevino and Arnold and, yeah, and all that. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's um, certainly watching men's golf. Um, you know, again, we can talk about it later. But watching them at, uh, overpower golf courses is, is, to me, it's not fun. It's um, You watch the guys play St Andrews now or some of the old great old Lynx courses and they just, if there's no wind, they just make a meal of it. You know, they're regularly shooting in the low 60s and high 50s. Um, in terms of watching someone hit at 450 yards, yeah, it's very entertaining. It's great, it's great fun, and it's, you know, it's, it's, I guess that is entertainment. But actually, for the for the golf purist, it's not. Um, and I think that technology hasn't changed the women's goal, women's game as much. I think it's brought players closer together. Um, I think that. Women's golf, um, if you look at somebody like Akari that was just an incredible ball striker and could hit a two or a three iron, um, you know, incredibly. Um, and all of a sudden, people start coming out with their seven woods. That's what I think one of the first ones with Callaway, the seven and nine woods and um, even five woods. Um, you know, all of a sudden, it brought the, the field closer together. I mean, I, you know, I enjoy watching women's golf more than I do watching men's golf. Um, was that always and true? And that hasn't always been the case. Oh, no, so. no, that hasn't, you know, so... You know, watching, you know, back in the day, watching, uh, you know, the great players hit long iron, Arnold Palmer or or even Norman hitting long irons and woods, um, it was great. You very, very rarely get to see anything but drivers and wedges these days in the men's game. Um, you know, and to me that's not really very entertaining. Watching them hit a massive drive is, but, you know, in terms of watching a round of golf, it, to me it's just, you know, Lots of driver wedges and lots of sand wedges. No, you don't. You don't get to see their their real skills, probably. Well, this is a point I often try to make. We as fans miss out, don't we? We, we will never have the joy of watching McElroy on Sunday afternoon deciding between a one iron and a forward for his second on the fifteenth. Yeah, and that's when golf's real. We saw Jack yep. do that. We saw Seve do that. We saw Norman do that. Yep. But we miss out on exactly. getting to see. Add fifty yards to it, maybe they might have to think about that. But we're just not going. We as fans are not going to get the chance to see that, and Rory's no, not going to get the chance to show that he can do it. Yeah, exactly. And even you know Augusta, if you, I think that's probably a great yardstick because you know you've grown up watching, 
you know, the great Masters champions, you know, 70s, 80s, you know, 90s even, and, you know, on 13 and 15, watching them go with the two iron over the water and stuff, and, and, and what a skill that is mm. to be able to do that at that time under that pressure. Mm. Whereas now, you know, they're hitting, what, driver eight irons, you know, it's those probably holes. Probably five so and six iron is It's probably, taken a lot of the drama yeah. out of it. But so, yeah. yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, to me, it's it just shows how much the game's changed when you've got you know people playing the same course, and it's been lengthened, obviously, um, you know, in recent years. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, to watch that all of those guys can hit those shots, but mm. they just don't need to very well, often. No, that's right. They hit the the only time they hit a long iron is on a par four, a par five, sorry, or if, or if they're laying up off the tee. So yeah. are there par fives anymore? That's the the real question. Yeah. <laughs> is there are there many legitimate three shot holes for a PGA Tour field in the world? And the answer is probably no. That's no, the exactly. that is the, the, the truth of it. Uh, it. It's a little bit like fast food. I often think, Karen, it's really satisfying to watch someone hit it three hundred eighty yards. But afterwards, when they've hit a wedge, they're green. You sort of think, oh, it's not quite as it's not quite like mum's baked dinner, is it? It's kind of <laughs> nice, but really, it's just sugar and calories, and it's not got uh, yeah, much substance. Yeah, no, absolutely. Will we see that impact in the women's game? Women, women now the top. I think something like the top five women on the LPGA tour statistically hit it further than Greg Norman did in his prime. That would have been yeah. if you'd said that when Greg Norman was in his prime, you would have been laughed out of professional golf. In fact, you'd have been laughed out of golf that that notion yeah, could possibly be true. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, you look at the driving averages, you know, on the LPGA tour, and yeah, I mean, your Lexis and and a couple of the really Maria Fassi now um, and Van Dam. I mean, they hit it incredible distances, and and all with very very different techniques. You look at you know, Lexi, and you sort of cringe every time <laughs> she hits the ball. It's just like, yeah. oh, something must have hurt there, surely. And and you look at Van Dam, who's got one of the most pure golf swings in the world, and it's just easy and free. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't, I don't actually see that much women's golf live now. Obviously, being back here um, the last sort of seven years, but obviously you, you see what you see on television. Uh, but you know, still the par fives often are the par fives, and you often see some of the women hitting, you know, maybe a rescue or a long line into a par three or second shot for a, you know, a par four. Certainly at the British Open last week, in those conditions, you saw um, all sorts of clubs coming out that probably don't get used that often. Is that real golf? A lot of us think that's real golf. You mentioned the golfing purist before. Mm-hmm. We might talk about what is a golfing purist and whether that's, in fact, an insult or a compliment. That <laughs> probably depends on yeah. your stance on the game. But what do you what do you think about? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, last week, obviously, the first two days was, you know, horrendous conditions. And we really was survival of the fittest. And, you you, you know, you, you probably see that it was those with the best short game that, that managed to navigate through those first couple of days um, without doing too much damage. And, you know, if you, I, I looked at Minji's stats and I think she only hit 16 of 36 greens in the first two rounds. Um, again, that just shows how good her short game was to be, you know, level par, roundabout level par yeah. through 36 holes. And you saw a lot of car crashes out there and you're just like, oh, yeah, they didn't have the patience or the short game. And that's why I never played Lynx golf very well because my, sh- <clears throat> my short game just wasn't up to – um, that of some of the, some of the other players, and perhaps my patience wasn't good enough was either. So. <laughs> well, uh, players out of their comfort zone—that's when you really find out who the players are. Minji Lee hitting sixteen out of thirty-six greens is a player well out of her comfort zone. She's used to hitting yep. a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. That's a real test of all facets of the game, isn't it? When the the patience and the mental side of the game is tested. Talk a little bit about that as a player. You said you didn't have the patience. Uh, what do you mean by that? And then we might talk about the, the short game, what you mean by your short game wasn't good enough. But that patience, and I've heard other players put it is you've got to stay out of your own way. 
Does that mm-hmm. make sense Absolutely. to you? And can you explain yeah, that to uh, us? A hundred percent, you know, and it's, you hear the old cliches from players, well, I just have to stay in my zone and play one shot at a time and stick to my game plan. But it's also true. Um, you know, and I was, I was a pretty aggressive player. Um, I like to take risks and I did take risks. If you speak to my sister about the way I played golf, she'd say I was an absolute idiot. Um, and some of the shots that I took on, but you know, that's why I love to play golf. I, I had those shots. I could do them and sometimes they'd work out. Sometimes they wouldn't. And you just have to take the punishment when they didn't. But, but, um, yeah, just stay, being able to stay patient and, and, you know, it's hard when you're looking, you know, you're playing and you may be three or four over par the first day and not to think about, you know, oh, shit, I'm three over. How, how am I going to get back from this in these conditions rather than just focusing on that one shot at a time and, and knowing that everyone else is struggling as well. That's that's where I struggled. Um, I had a good enough golf game to play in those mm-hmm. tough conditions, but, you know, I was just perhaps pushed too hard at the wrong times. And, again, you know, you've got to have a great short game, um, you know, and, and my putting, you know, let me down more times than it, than it helped me out. So it was just, you know, you've got to be able to make those – you know, six footers constantly in those conditions. And that was that was definitely what let me down. We see that so often with really good players, Karen, that putting seems to be this problematic thing and it seems to become more of a problem the longer people play. Only for some, not for all. What do you think that's about? Is it just such a completely different skill to the striking of the ball in all ways, mentally, physically, everything about it is so different? Talk to me about that and putting and what, what was it that you found yep, difficulty about putting? What, what gave you difficulty in putting? Yeah, I mean, I was never a great putter, even as a as a young player. Um, whereas my sister Marty was a great putter. Um, all of, most of her career, she was just, you know, she she was very natural. Just stand up, bang from six feet, never think about it. Right? I always had some demons from you know those short putts, um, and and it, and it was. Yeah, I guess it was how I approached it as well. I call I sort of called ball striking golf, and then putting uh-huh. was that other thing that you kind of had to be able to do. Um, whereas you know we all know that it's 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 a skill that's probably more important than anything else. But perhaps looking back, you know, I probably spent way too much time practicing my long game because I loved it, <clears throat> and probably neglected practicing putting because I wasn't very good at it. So. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I did. I definitely saw it as, as different to golf, which, you know, it's obviously a crucial part of it. And when you're young, you know, you just want to hit it, you know, hit all the different shots and have fun, you know, oh, that other part of it. Oh, yeah, it's that'll a- be right. If I play well <laughs> enough, that'll take care of itself. So It's the Hogan trap, isn't it? He was very yeah. much the same. Yeah, putting should count for, what did he say? Putting should count for half a shot instead of a full yeah, shot yeah, because exactly. it, it's not fair that yeah. I can do what I can do. And if you're a better putter, you can play as well as I yeah, can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, and, yeah. you know, like I said, Marty and I were chalk and cheese. She was a great putter and she was a great player as well. But um, just to have that putting to to know that that's there, I, to, there were very few times in my career that I could actually say that I had confidence in my putting that that would always, that would save me because, it, yeah, it wasn't the case. Would practising have helped that? And in a funny way, would modern technology make it easier for yes. a less than good putter to get better? Yeah, I think the modern technology would definitely – later on in my career, I probably putted better um, than I did earlier in my, my career, and a lot of that was probably because of um, the advice I got and, the, and and that I've actually learned a lot about the mechanics of putting and how it worked and, and also, you, you know, your brain, how it works as well. So I absolutely – I think that the technology and, and some of the advice that I had later in my career would have been really valuable. You know, I'm not saying I didn't practice putting because I no, did. You know, I'd stand there with my, you know, I'd ha- I had all the different gadgets. I had, you know, the putting mirrors. I had um, the th- little th- the putter clips you put. You know, I had every gadget that, that was out there, at, you know, at the time. Um, but like I said, if I had have had, you know, maybe a little bit better advice in, early in my career than who knows. But, 
are you naturally the artist or the scientist? There's two types of golfers, I think. There's the analysts mm-hmm. and the scientists, Hogan probably, and then there's the artists, Seve, which were you? Mm. I think definitely early in my career I was the artist. Um, you know, I didn't really care what the mechanics of a golf swing, but obviously later on in my career I became more aware of that and I probably became more of a scientist, which again probably did help my putting, um, but but certainly more the artist. And, you know, my sister Marty was was – you know, definitely the artist. I mean, she was, you know, didn't really know much, didn't want to know much. I remember um, one of the years in the States that I'd lost my card. I went out and caddied for her for a few events. And I distinctly remember this. Um, I think it was at Riviera in, in LA. And she had this shot and it was a little bit of an upslope. And she was having trouble with the lining up. So I said, I'll line you up on this one. And so get behind her and line her up. And I said, I oh, know you, you're aiming straight at the flag. And she's like, well, yeah, that's where I need to aim, isn't it? And I said, no, you're on an upslope. The ball's going to come a little bit left um, off that upslope. And she's like, oh, why? <laughs> you, never, you, never told, you never told me that. You know, and because, you know, I guess what Marty learned most of a golf from watching me, you know, and I was just like, oh, gosh, you, you're how many ever years you've been playing this game? And you just, you know, again, because she was never one to read a golf magazine or or get bogged down with, you know, information. It was just like, oh, okay, well, I've learned that today. That's nice. You know, so <laughs> I think that just shows you that she was, a you know, a great artist and it was very natural. And even though she probably didn't think she was aiming right all those years off upslope, she probably was. <laughs> That, that, uh, us amateurs find that staggering that you could be playing on the LP that you could be a winner on the LPGA, which Marty was. She won, I think, uh-huh. in nineteen ninety nine. Yep. She won a tournament, yep. and not know that an upslope means the ball's going to go left. And you, yep. that is staggering, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, you know, it just shows the way she played. It was just like you know, and golf was always you know, I was, I was much. I guess I'm a more serious person. Um, Whereas Marty, you know, it was just it, golf really was a game to her. Mm-hmm. She'd come off after shooting 80 and it'd be like, oh, well, that's where I'll have a better day tomorrow. Was me, it was just, you know, the end of the world. And <laughs> yeah, so two different, two very different characters. Why do the golf gods divide the talent up so unfairly, Karen? Where Marty can not know anything about the golf swing and play on the LPGA and win. And there are other people, I'm not one of them, but I do know people who spend their entire lives studying and working and never get better than 10. Yeah, I know exactly. That's right. Yeah, it's maybe cruel, too much information is um, is detrimental sometimes. What do you think are the uh, – clearly you're, you would have shown ability early on. Were you just a natural sports person, the both of you? Were you good at all the sports that you tried? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Marty and I were both both pretty good athletes as young people. Yeah, we, you know, we swam, we ran, we, you know, as country kids do. Um, you know, we were both pretty reasonable. I was a decent tennis player when I was a kid, played netball. As I said, Marty played state basketball and, and was a very good swimmer as well. So I think, you know, yeah, we were both pretty natural. And certainly with golf, I think both of us were very natural when we started. Was it my easy? Dad once said, my dad once said, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the late Daryl Fazio. Yes. Yep. Great man, Faz. And he once said to my dad, he said, Cole, he said, you must be one of the most unselfish blokes in the whole world. And and he's like, oh, why is that, Faz? He said, because you didn't keep one ounce of golfing talent for yourself. You gave it all to your kids. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where our golfing genes came from, but it certainly wasn't our parents. So was your dad a golfer? Is that how you came to? He that? played. He played left-handed, and he was a terrible golfer. Um, his swing re- resembled that of the the late Ted Ball. <laughs> Do you remember old Ted? I, I know the name. I can't. I don't pretend to know that how he swings. No. Very flat. And- um, very fast. Very flat. Very short. But. Um, 
Yeah, Dad had a few records at the club, but most of them were for the highest score ever recorded <laughs> on one hole. So <laughs> great for video games, not so good for golf. No, but uh, no, he enjoyed he enjoyed playing with his mates, but it was all about how many beers they could drink in the round of golf rather than their uh-huh. scores. So. And how was his? How was yours and Marty's relationship with him when it came to golf? He must have been extraordinarily proud as a father. Yeah, yeah, he was, and and Mum was as well, and. Um, yeah, I mean, they just pretty much let us do that, their thing. They didn't pretend to be experts or, um, you know, guide us. They let the people that knew about golf guide us, which was which was really good because obviously you see some of the issues with parents that just probably go a little bit too close and are a little bit too pushy sometimes. So there's a balance, though. It's obviously mm-hmm. you need that support, absolutely. Mm. Um, but just let the people that know what they're doing, you know, guide them. Tough to be a golf parent, tough to know the people who do know what they're doing and the more money in the game, the more people who will tell you they know what they're doing and you don't know if they do. You would have seen that change over the years. There's a lot of dangers for a young, talented golfer in the modern era, isn't there? It's, you know, such and such has done this. This guy can help you, that guy can help you. I've got the answer. I've got the secrets. How did they navigate all of that and, 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 and do, it, do players come to you for advice with that sort of thing? And do you find yourself thinking, God, I'm not sure I know anymore what's the best way forward? Yeah, I, I know. And that's, that's a really good question. And, and even as far as caddies, like, you know, there's a lot of caddies out there. Well, you know, I did this and I did that. And um, even going back to um, to Annika, um, when she first came on tour, you know, I've, I've always got on really well with her. And and when she qualified for the US in her first year, she came to me and said, look, you know, I've got all these letters from caddies. You know, this one says he's going to do this and this one says that. And, you know, and I, she said, do you mind having a look? And I said, no. And I said, oh, actually, there's, you know, one of the young guys that's caddied in Europe for a few years, Colin Can. Um, he's a good mate of mine. And he's, Colin was, um, he'd taken a few years off and then he was going to go back to university. And But he said, oh, I wouldn't mind having a go in America one year. So um, I said, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I like Colin. He's a nice guy. I said, okay, yeah, well, he's quite keen. So have a chat with him. So, you know, Colin ended up caddying for Annika for quite a few years and she was number one in the world. So he, he buys me a few drinks every now and again when I see him. But when I was caddy for Paula Cream, I won a US Open with her and, and caddy for many great players. That's all true, Karen, but because of you, he doesn't have a university degree. I know. You, that's you should right, be exactly. ashamed of yourself <laughs> that you robbed him of that job. I should be. I should be as well. But, um, yeah, no, I think that that's, you know, sorry to get a little bit no, off, no, no, off not the topic there. But, um it's, it's so true, you know, and these people out there, they can sell themselves really well. And like I said, if, you've, if you're a young player and, and your parents, you know, don't know that much, and that's where you have to rely on, I think, mentors, you know, and that's where Curry's been so good to all of our young women. And I'm sure in the guys' game, you know, you've got guys like Nick O'Hearn and that, that are putting their hand up to say, I want to help these people because there's so many that will, you know, sing their song and say, I can do this and make you the best player in the world. And, yeah, I, I think that that's where the mentoring comes from and you have to listen to the people that have been there and seen that and done that to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and that goes for caddies, coaches, psychologists, nutritionists, you know, all of these people that form the, the team these days. Um, they're all, they can all sell themselves. And, yeah, you, you do have to be very, very careful because they won't, a lot of them won't hesitate to say, well, your coach is rubbish. Um, I can do this and this and look what I've done, you know, and it's, yeah, you need to be so careful. It's probably always been the case to an extent, Karen, but I've always felt that professional golfers, the golf part is kind of the sanctuary, or, or if you're successful, quickly become so. You look forward to going and playing golf because at least you don't have to deal with all of that. The rest yeah. of that is really hard work, isn't it? And it's the oh, it's, it's the it golf is, becomes you know, the, 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 the kind of time off, not time off in a way, but it comes, well, this is why I do it. Thank God I get to play golf because the rest of it's a nightmare. 
Absolutely. And another one is managers. You know, there's so many managers out there that I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to do that for you and I'll make you a millionaire and you only have to give me 20% of your prize money and that's all you have to do and I'll do the rest. And, you know, I've, I've seen so many young players get caught up in, in arrangements like that. So, again, I'd, my advice would be go and talk to somebody that's been there and done that, you know, and that's, again, you've got, you know, you've got Kari, you've got people like Rachel um, Heatherington that you know Rachel's doing a law degree now and she's been a great asset to so many of our young players so I think you know just go and talk to those who have been there and done it and actually know who are the good who are the experts in these fields and who are the pretenders yeah indeed you of course now will come to administration you're now you did a long stint on the board of the ladies European tour as a player uh, and now having well I don't know if golfers ever retire but you're the head of the ALPG here in Australia is it time for the tours to think about their responsibility and all of that for young players? The relationship between players and the tours has always been one of individual contractors. You organise tournaments, players decide whether or not they want to play in them and there's criteria and all those sorts of things. Is there a role for tours? And I think also the other end of careers about things like superannuation and uh, what happens to players when their careers finish, if they finish suddenly through injury or whether they play a full career and then what have they got at the end of it? You would know people personally, I'm sure, who played terrific golf for years and years and years and years and at the other end have nothing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really important um, important point. Um, uh, with the, within the ALPG now, we have something called the Next Generation Club. Um, and it's to help our rookies um, and even, you know, we, we've welcomed the high-performance girls from Golf Australia in as well to try and prepare them for life on tour. And it's not about teaching them how to swing a golf club. It's about preparing them for all those other areas. So um, that's been going for a couple of years now. I do, I do think that it's a really important responsibility. Um, when I was at LET, again, you know, lots of conversations about, you know, what should we do about, you know, superannuation. Obviously, when you're involved with a tour that has players from so many different countries, it's a can of worms. Um, but I, I do think that it's the golfing bodies definitely do. And I think that in Australia, I think that there's been a lot of progress in over the last six months um, in terms of the, the golfing bodies working more closely together. We've been collaborating very closely with the PGA. Um, I have a great relationship with Gavin and his team at the PGA. We've got a lot of conversations about uh, going on about um, what we can do more for our members. Ultimately, you know, both of our organisations are member organisations. Um, and also, you know, with Golf Australia, I think that that relationship is certainly um, heading in the right direction. So we do have a responsibility. I think that um, certainly from the women's side, um, since Stacey Peters came into her role at Golf Australia um, maybe four years ago, three, four years ago now, um, I think that that's been – I think having somebody like Stacey there that's played on tour to be out there helping the young players, I think that's been enormously um, helpful for them. Uh, but, yes, absolutely, you know, we, we do have a role, but that has to be working. You know, Golf Australia – have, have the players up to a point um, and they turn pro. Some of them get in the rookie program, some don't. But there has to be um, some consistency there right through. So we, we ha we're having um, some of our female coaches be more involved in um, the high-performance programs, um, working with Stacey and, and Brad down at Golf Australia. So there's certainly a lot of work being done in those areas um, because I do think – and that's why I think the college system in the States is, is so great – um, Emily McLennan, who works with me at ALPG, Emily went through the college system, was a good player, played on Symmetra, uh, but, but got herself a couple of degrees along the way. So, um, you know, when, when she decided that she didn't want to play golf anymore, you know, she was very prepared for the next stage of her life. Um, and we want to keep 
we want to keep people like Emily and Stacey and we want to keep them in the game. You know, they have so much to give. Um, so I think that's that's really important. So, like I said, I, I would certainly recommend the college system. for. I don't know as much about the men's side as I do about the women's, but I think it's a great way to, to get an education, um, get some of the best competition there is around in the, in the college system and then, you know, prepare yourself for life on tour give it a go. And if you don't, you've got that back up um, because, you know, it's a long life after you finish playing golf, that's for sure. Yeah, indeed. I want to come back to why you personally might have been drawn to the notion of administration. Not all players are. There are some players, the whole idea of being in an office running a golf tournament would just leave them so cold they wouldn't cope. We'll come back to that in a moment. But that divide of responsibility between the amateur body and the professional bodies, we've seen historically that the professional bodies haven't, whether the mechanics just aren't there, whether it's not been a reality, there hasn't really been a role for them to play necessarily in the early professional career of those graduating from amateurs. What are those responsibilities? There are many who would tell you that Golf Australia has no business running a rookie professional program. They're an amateur body. That's nothing to do with them. Once the players are no longer amateur, Golf Australia have no responsibility to them. That You can see why that might feel a bit harsh to some, but is there... Is there a legitimate point to be made there? And how might the professional and amateur bodies work better together for that tiny pool of players who are in that position? It is a tiny percentage of players. It is, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, you know, and obviously Golf Australia receive um, some funding from Sport Australia um, through their high-performance program, and then obviously you have the the very generous donation that the Kinghorn Foundation provide for rookie program and they provide golf Australia with that funding for them to do as they see fit with it. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite unusual that, a, you know, an amateur body would provide funding for professionals, but it's not, you know, it happens in France, it happens in Sweden, it does happen in, um, in the Netherlands. So it does happen in, in some other countries, but, but again, it's just, I think our responsibility is, to, you know, to be there for all of the professionals, you know, when they turn pro, not just that small group, because the small group are fine. They're getting the funding, they're getting the advice, they're getting the coaching. Um, and I think that's, again, Stacey's been a great support for, um, for for all of the young players, including the ones that miss out on, on getting in that rookie program, because I know she's in constant contact with them. Um, and I think that You'll, I think Minji and, and so the success that Minji and Sue and, and just to some extent Hannah have had, um, they've, they've probably benefited greatly from having Stacey in their corner. But I think it's it's more important that, you know, what about those other ones? You know, there's certainly in the men's game, there's a lot more of them um, that, that, that decide, OK, I'm going to go out and play on tour and they don't have any support at all. There's Marty there in the background. Yeah, yeah, I'll just yeah. <laughs> No, no, I think she, she's bored. She's bored with our conversation. She's left us. Yeah, no, no, it's all good. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's the responsibility, and that's something that I'm very aware of, and and I think that certainly Kari and some of the other other players that that Kari's door is not just open for the girls in the rookie program that win the Kari Web Scholarship. Um, she's you know spent enough time with enough of the other young players, um, and always made time for them playing practice rounds at the Australian Open. Um, with some of them not in the rookie squad that, you know, here's my number, text me if, if you need anything. And, and certainly um, in my role at ALPG, I'm very aware of that and, and try to establish those relationships with the, the young amateurs when they have the opportunities to play in pro events. I always take the time to chat with them, get to know them. And the same thing, look, here's my card, here's my number. If there's anything that, you know, you need any help um, and, and rely on Stacey, you know, just because you're not in, in the, the rookie program or you're not going to be in the rookie program, you know, she's a great resource for you to have. So I think that we we certainly um, 
I, I don't I don't know what the PGA are doing in that space, but I know you know they have a lot of educational programs and and they do a great job in that space with with all the stuff that they're doing. Um, you know we've we've got some conversations going on about uh, providing. Uh, educational opportunities for our for our members and specifically for our players that are away to upskill. Um, if I had had the opportunity to study when I was away on tour remotely, I definitely would have done it. But obviously, it wasn't possible when I was a, a young player. But it is now, and I think that um, as a young pro golfer, you think you're so busy, but the reality is you have so much spare time. Um, and it, you know, I think it's good to have a distraction as well because we talked before about golf becoming your life whereas the reality is it isn't life it's just a part of it and it's obviously an important part of it sometimes but you know it shouldn't define who you are and I think that that's the balance it, it can define who you are and how you feel about yourself mm-hmm. uh, whereas if you have something else in your life that you can focus on when you're not playing I think that that's really really important so yeah there's you know I'm really passionate about you know, providing the young players with everything we need the, everything they need because I know how tough it is Indeed. You hear the guys talk sometimes about that's what parenthood does, isn't it? It changes the – 78 used to be just a horrible week. If you shot 78 somewhere, that was a terrible week. When you shoot 78, you go home and there's a little one saying, can we have pizza? Kind of puts yeah. it in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's a golf yeah, school. It's, it's not me yeah, as a person. Absolutely. It's just a, yeah. just a golf school. Speaking of yeah. perspective, I wanted to ask you about this earlier. You mentioned that your dad passed away suddenly, which must have been mm-hmm. horrendous, obviously. Mm-hmm. What does that do for a golfer? And perspective, because obviously you're getting older the whole time you're playing golf, so your life experience, all of those things build up. Sure. Your, your attitudes towards things change. What does that do for perspective? And in a funny way, can it help golf because it puts it in its rightful place compared to something actually serious like your dad passing? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, obviously it was, you know, Marty and I were both playing a tournament in um, St. Louis in America and we'd just driven off. Um, I'd driven off to the next um, event and I was supposed to do a corporate day and Marty was flying somewhere else and, yeah, obviously got the news that he passed away, which was horrendous, so flew home as soon as we can, could. And obviously then, you know, golf from in one day went from mm-hmm. being the most important thing in your life to just not being important at all. Neither of us knew when we'd play next. Um, obviously there are other priorities and, and 100%, it changes your perspective. You know, you think it's life and death, but until something like that happens, and I was only 28, so not like I was that old, and Marty 26. So, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's a big life lesson um, uh, and certainly definitely changes your perspective. Like, you know, our focus became looking after our mum and making sure she was all right and, and obviously making sure we were all right too. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, 100%, I think when something like that happens to you at a reasonably young age that – it certainly teaches you that, yeah, this is this is actually just a game. <laughs> and to try and perhaps draw a segue that's not there, but does that have some – has that played some role in why you've found administration and making the game for the players of the future better than it has been for you and Marty? Has that played some role in that? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I'm trying to think. Went that back that when looking I first... after thing that you do, looking after your mum, yeah. looking after your sister. There's a. It's almost a mothering instinct in some ways. Yeah, it is. You know, and obviously, I don't have any kids of my own, so it, it probably is. And I, you know, I've always Marty and I sort of looked after each other, but she's always been my. She will always be my little sister. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's there's perhaps that there. Um, I'm just trying to think when I actually joined, because I was on the Players' Council on the Ladies' European Tour. That was my first step into sort of anything outside playing. So I think that was probably 98. So that was just a couple of years after we lost Dad. So um, I did that for a few years and I became chair of the Players' Council. Then I went onto the board and became obviously chair of the board. So, 
yeah, I just I just felt that I had something to contribute, and you know, I, I wanted to have a say. So I, I didn't want to be that person in the background that was just always bitching and moaning about everything. It's just like, well, if I want things to be done differently, I need to put my hand up and say, well, actually, I'm going to do that. So, but certainly in terms of you know, so, sometimes you know, our members and certainly our playing group that, that I've known a lot of them since they were, were amateurs, I almost see them as my kids, you know. It's just like there's people like Whitney Hillier and, and Sarah Camp and, you know, to Nikki Garrett a few years ago. Like I've known these kids and played with them when they were juniors, um, you know, and I do I do feel such a sense of responsibility and, um, you know, some of the tournaments when you're in there doing the scorecards, it's just, you know, you see some of the people that count the scorecards and they're just like, yeah, numbers, numbers, numbers. To me, it's like a knife through my heart when I see that triple bogey or something. You know, it's just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the scores and, and looking at their face, and you know, you just, you know, you know, you know what they're feeling. Um, you know, so I'm all, I'm always trying to think that how can I make this better. And like I said, I think you know probably one of the few things I can do is just to say, look, my door's always open. You know where to find me, um, and just keep encouraging them. You know, it's just you know how hard it is. Um, especially being from Australia, you're so far away from your family and your support network and especially for young girls, I think it's probably different to young guys, you know, emotionally being away from your family, whether it be your boyfriend, your, you know, your cousins, your coach, it's just, it's, it's tough. It really is, especially when things aren't going so well. So I think really just, you know, encouraging them as much as you can is really important. But I, I do definitely feel a sense of responsibility. And, you know, even when we're putting the tour schedule together and obviously next year, who knows what's going to be possible and what isn't going to be possible in early 2021. And, you know, I'm just not thinking, oh, you know, yeah, for an association point of view, it's, you know, we have to consider all the implications. But I'm like, oh, you know, the players, they'll have nowhere to play. You know, it's just that's the heartbreaking thing for me. Um but, you know, obviously we have to wait and see. You know, we don't know yet. We're into what, early into September and, um, you know, obviously things in Victoria aren't looking great down there. So we just have to, I guess, watch this space for another couple of months and then make some decisions about what's possible next year. So. Yeah. Some of those names you mentioned, I've been writing about them for as long as you've known them. And I feel yeah, so. yeah, Nikki yeah. Garrett's got kids, Karen. That's cruel. Mm-hmm. That makes me a certain age. Nikki Garrett's got her own children. She's just a child herself. Yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah. Just extraordinary. Two, two beautiful kids. Yeah. Nixon and Stella, but yeah, she she does, and yeah, she's very happy. She still plays, uh, I think, some corporate golf, and mm-hmm. and you see her on Facebook. There, she's out there playing. I don't know what she shot. She put a scorecard up on Facebook the other day, and there were lots of lots of birdies on there. So, but <laughs> no you know, she's a talented player, and and I guess that's the the tough thing for for women. Um, especially again being it from Australia like if you want to make that choice and, and have a family it's pretty much the end of your career like unless you've got the resources and an incredibly wealthy supportive husband that's prepared to travel with you and look after the kids if you want to go back to the European tour or the LPGA tour um, the same with Nikki Campbell you know Nikki's you know very happy you know living in Canberra with a couple of kids but that means the end of their careers more often than not. Whereas with the guys, you know, most of the time, well, yeah, I'll go back playing. The the wife will manage the kids, and and that's you know great for them. But for for most of the girls, unfortunately, it does mean that you know their playing career is over. So we've seen a few mums. Katrina Matthews springs to mind. Julie Inkster, we know, had the kids on tour. It's pretty rare, though, isn't it? I wonder, is it just a lack of opportunity in finance, or does something happen perhaps after? childbirth for mums that's different to dads where maybe they don't have the desire 
in the same? Um, I don't know. I'm asking. I'll I don't know. I mean, certainly from the ones that I've spoken to that have had families, I mean, the desire's been there. And you talk about Katrina, she's been fortunate to have two very um, supportive sets of her parents and Graham's parents as well that have travelled with them from time to time. And sometimes they leave the kids with them and, and travel. So, they've, you know, they've had that support. But, you know, travelling from Scotland to, to, to America, you know, you jump on a plane for eight hours and you're there and you can, you know, you can go for a couple of weeks, come back. Whereas, again, for the Australian girls, um, it's it's just not that simple. And, you know, you, you think of Karen Coke and Julie Inkster and, and the LPGA have a great system in place where they have a crash on tour. Um, but ultimately, if you wanted to do that from Australia, you've got to pick your life up and you can't come back every couple of weeks. You know, you've got to pick your life up and move it overseas. And like I said, unless you've got you've made so much money yourself or you have a husband who's unbelievably supportive, um, it doesn't happen. Um, very, very rarely. I can't think of you know Jenny Seville played up in Japan um, when she had her young fellow Ryan. But again, Japan to Australia is probably a lot easier and more manageable. But I can't really think of many of our players that have gone on to have families that have, have kept playing. Yeah, we're right. If you want to be a professional golfer, male or female, you pack up and leave Australia. That's the reality of it yeah, as, yeah, sure. as a career yeah. choice. But harder to pack up a couple of kids and a support network and take them than just up and off yourself, Absolutely. as you say, unless you've got a private yeah. jet and all the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> uh, that goes with it. Back to administration. What is the state of play for golf and women's golf in the country? You mentioned the ALPG, PGA working more closely together. Yeah. What's What's the... What's the ideal outcome for the game in this country? Both men's and women's golf struggles professionally for sponsorship and attention and media space and exposure. Uh, the men less so than the women, but we would hardly look to the men's tour of the 2000s or the 2020s. You look at some of the old footage on YouTube of tournaments in the 80s and 90s and six deep down the side of each fairway and around the greens, the crowds and the names that play. We don't have that anymore in Australia for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the ideal outcome? What are we working towards at that level well, for the if, benefit if you of look both? at the, um, the events that have been successful, obviously the Vic Open is an absolute standout. Um, it's probably been one of the fastest growing sporting events in the country, let alone golf tournaments. Um, you know, we've been fortunate to have a premier in Dan Andrews, who obviously is a keen golfer, but also, you know, he doesn't do it because he's a keen golfer. He, do, he sees the value in, in what that tournament brings to Victoria um, in terms of promoting Melbourne as a tourist destination. Um, you know, there's a number of reasons, obviously, why it's done, but I think that that bringing the men and the women together is a no-brainer. And certainly from our point of view, you know, we, we don't have that many Australian players playing full-time on the pro circuits. So in any given week for us to, to put on an event, we just we don't have the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we, we introduced the international membership um, to the tour just before I came on board um, under Warren Seville's watch. Um, and obviously we have a lot more international members. We have a, a playing group of around about 100 now, but – the reality is that there we have a window probably of eight weeks a year when they can actually play when they're not playing on the LET, the Japan Tour, one of the other tours, or the LPGA Symmetra. Um, so, you know, for us, um, it makes sense for us to look towards more joint events with men and women. Um, and there's a lot of conversations going on with ourselves in the PGA of what that looks like in the future. Um, and I think that, you know, that there's a couple of things in the pipeline that, you know, you'll probably see hopefully early next year, um, of men and women playing together. And, and obviously, as well, um, keeping that amateur element there so our up-and-coming stars of the future are getting the opportunity to play in pro events as amateurs. 
because I think that if you speak to, to a Hannah Green or Minji, um, they will tell you how valuable those experiences have been to them um, prior to them going off to the major tours. They've had the experience of playing with the best players in the world, um, and that's gold for them. So I think that's really crucial. So um, I think that the, the joint men's and women's events are a, um, a no-brainer. Um, they tick boxes. The players love them. The sponsors love them. Government loves them. Um, and the fans love the opportunity to, to see the men and women playing together. Um, so I think that, you know, a big hats off to, um, to Simon Brookhouse and his team at Golf Victoria for having the, the vision and the David Greenhill too, who was, you know, it was his concept really mm-hmm. for having the vision to, to put something like this together because it hadn't been done before. It's the flavor of the month everywhere. Everyone's in the world of golf are talking about the tours, you know, playing together. But I think that that certainly will be the direction that, that you'll see golf in Australia going in the, in the future. Will it look like the Vic Open or are there some more creative ideas about uh, of how that might so we know that in Sweden they wanted to have the Annika Henrik thing where everybody played off now did they play off the same they were going to play off different tees but it was the one tournament tees, wasn't yeah. it yeah. and obviously there's some issues with that that you can immediately see whether that makes any sense to do it that way or whatever but are there some more creative things around that possibly because you're right the Vic Open's been a huge success it's now in the position where it might become a victim of its own success in that everything that's made it fantastic one of them being no fairway ropes, uh-huh. the bigger the stars that start to turn up for the event, the more that becomes threatened, uh, that element of it. So there's issues to manage there as well. But uh, is that sort of the model or are there other ideas about how we might do it? Because for a game that's got an image problem broadly amongst the non-golf population, it could be a very, very, very positive thing if professional golf had a much more united look, yep. feel and approach. Yeah, and that's certainly where we're heading. Um, like I said, we've got a lot of conversations on uh, ongoing between the the ALPG board and the the PGA of Australia board, um, and um, Gavin and myself and our teams are, are working really close together in a number of areas. So I think I think you're right. I think that it can only be for the benefit of the game. I think that we'll see um, more vehicle style events um, with two separate prize purses, but I think we'll also um, see some events where it's just one prize purse and men and women playing together. Obviously, different tees, and that's the challenge of getting uh, a course that's set up fairly for both the men and the women. But I think that that we'll we'll see a, a lot more events like that, hopefully, um, in the next three to five years. They managed it in Jordan, didn't they? That incredible seniors yes, exactly. challenge tour and LET event, which Meg McLaren is still seething that she didn't win <laughs> because she had a chance. Yeah, it was well, she had a good chance. It was a should have, yes, and she, she didn't get it done. But. Uh, yeah, and no, absolutely. And that was um, obviously a very innovative event and something that, you know, people are like, well, that can never work. But it did work. And unfortunately, we haven't seen it again. But obviously, as you said, the Annika Henrik um, event that won't happen this year, that probably will, I'd imagine, definitely happen next year, will will be, I guess, the benchmark. It'll be on a massive stage. Obviously, when you've got Annika and Henrik headlining that, um, the media attention is going to be very significant. And, and like I said, the challenge is to set it up so it's fair for everyone. So you can say, you know, and that that's – it's 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 – if you look at the word challenge, it's just a challenge, but it's a massive challenge. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you look at the if when you look at the possibilities for men, how far back you can go. Well, that's as far back as you can play the men. So you don't want the women playing pitch and putt either. But to make it fair, you kind of have to. Yeah. So it's just you know it's that that's a big big challenge in setting up these events. But the more events that happen, the more data will be around, the more um, information um, about the best way to set the courses up. So you know. 
at the moment we've only had one of these events. There'll be, there'll be a lot more. And, and even during the COVID break in, um, in a lot of the European countries, their national federations and the PGAs of those countries have been putting on combined yeah. um, men's and women's events. And um, I think it was Emily Pedersen that won one of them up in, um, in Denmark. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's, we're going to see more and more of that all over the world. Yeah. A lot of mini tours in the states have been doing the same thing. Have been letting a lot of the LPGA and Symmetra tour players tee up, and they've won quite a bit. I think um, Anna Norquist won one. She shot three sixty threes or something crazy yeah. on the Cactus Tour. Yeah, she did. There's been right. some yeah. fantastic stories, which is good as well. The other thing, Karen, I suppose you'd ask the golfing public, and I would make this point: have a bit of patience, uh, be, uh, allow people to get things a bit wrong in the effort to get things right. Don't expect these things to work fantastically, perfectly straight off the bat necessarily that you've got to have the opportunity when you're in new territory to make some mistakes because that's how you learn and that's how you make things better the next time around. So the danger is, and it was the danger for the Vic Open the first year they had the combined thing, was that people say, oh, that didn't work and just don't ever try it again, as though no part of the idea had any merit. And clearly it had merit because seven years later it's a European to an LPGA event. But I remember people saying at the time, oh, that was a joke, that was ridiculous, I don't know why they'd bother trying that. They should they should cancel that and do something different. Well yeah. have a bit of uh have a bit of uh common sense common sense about it. What's your overall feeling? Is it optimistic? Is it I know what you're gonna say, but I've got to put all the options on the table for you. Yeah. Are you optimistic? Is it bleak? Given COVID, um Given the state of the world in so many different ways, politically, we seem to be heading, we're in this binary place where if you're not with us, you're against us. If it's not black, it must be white. If you're not right, you must be wrong. All of those things are impacting golf and professional golf and everything in all sorts of ways. Is your overall outlook optimistic? Because, of course, on the flip side, women's sport generally, and I think women's golf in a lot of ways, lots and lots and lots of positive energy at the moment, thanks to people like Meg McLaren in part, who writes so eloquently about many of those kind of gender issues, there's a real scales happening there, isn't there? There's so much to yeah, be absolutely. bleak about and so 100%. much to be positive about. And I think that, you know, if you're involved in women's golf, you can be nothing but positive with, with everything that's going on. Obviously, the LPGA, since, <clears throat> sorry, under Mike Wan's watch, um, has just grown and continues to go from strength to strength. And, you know, I, I'm sure you saw an article that was written in the past week just saying that, well, actually, the LPGA's got it right. You know, people want to watch women's golf because men's golf, you know, it's they're overpowering golf courses. And as we spoke about before, perhaps it's not that interesting anymore. And, I'm not going to say that that's the case or it's not the case, but if that's what people are writing. And women's golf has so much to offer. You know, the, the players are so engaging. Um, they're great on social media. They understand their role in um, promoting their own sport, which which is and, – and that's across the board. If you look at women's cricket here in Australia, uh, women's soccer, women's netball, um, the players have had to really buy into their part in promoting their sport. Um, and, and perhaps because the media haven't done that. So I think in Australia we've still got a long way to go in, in terms of media coverage, but there's been a real shift in the last year, I think, um, and I've noticed it within golf, um, and there's lots of discussions going on, whereas perhaps 
there weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there was um, some stuff going on on Twitter a little while ago um, about Hannah being on the cover of one of the, the golf publications here in Australia, um, you know, with Kari getting involved in that. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that, you know, we, we have to be prepared to stand up. You know, before it was just like, oh, you little girls go away. You know, you don't know what you're doing. But now it's just like, no, we, we know the product that we have is good. We know these players are wonderful. We know the experience that they can provide to, to fans and people watching. So, you know, we, we've got to back ourselves. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of positivity. I think COVID's obviously a massive issue in sport, um, how we view sport, how sport will be watched and consumed. Um, and I think we have to be um, we have to be proactive rather than be reactive um, and look at how people are going to engage with sport. You know, we might not be able to have crowds at, at golf tournaments anymore. So how do we how do we keep engaging with our fans and keep our sponsors happy? Because obviously that's a very important part of it. So I think that um, there's a lot of challenges, but I think here in Australia um, I'm really confident that the work that we're doing with the PGA um, is going to result in some great events moving forwards. And I think that's, you know, going to provide great opportunities for our young players to give them the experience that they need to go off and compete on the world tours because obviously it's, it's hard to go out there raw. Um, so no, I'm I'm very positive about the future. Obviously, COVID's uh, a different can of worms, and and it's something that we're just dealing with on a day to day basis. And um, you know, we just got to try and get through the early part of next year and 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 see how that goes. At, at the moment, we don't we don't know. Obviously, we you know the government restrictions in place at the moment. You know, international players can't come here at all, um, and whether they could actually come here and quarantine or not quarantine, well, that's another another discussion. Yeah. It's an opportunity there, Karen. You can raffle the tickets to the tournaments, limit the crowd sizes, then yeah, raffle yeah, the sure. tickets and drive the drive the premiums up. That's the way to go. Less yeah, people yeah. to cater to, get the same <laughs> same amount. Yeah, of, well, I mean, yeah, I think I think we do have to, you know, think we always have to think outside the box. But I think that then in times like this, you have to be really creative um, and look at how you know you market your product and how you sell your product. Yeah. How do you navigate those difficult conversations when you feel like you've got a point to make that not everybody's going to enjoy listening to? You're the head of the ALPG, so there's expectations about public performance and the things that you say and how you say them. Are they tricky issues? I mean, I'm sure at times, I won't expect you to necessarily, I'm sure at times you must shake your head and want to go into a room and scream about some of the things you see, but you know that that's not effective on the public stage. Yeah. So how do you sort of do that? And is that part of what you've been learning through all of these roles from 98 onwards as being a part of the administration and seeing golf from a different side. As a player, it's only got one dimension golf. There's a purse, there's a golf course, and there's a field. (laughs) And and you go, that's all all you do. There's much more to it than that, obviously. So how do you expect that to unfold? I think I think in in golf, obviously, you know, the ALPG is a relatively small organisation, and we have a small a small voice. Um, And I think the key for me has been. The collaboration with our industry industry partners, specifically Golf Australia and the PGA, whereas if we're united in our voice and our communications that this is acceptable, this isn't acceptable, people will listen. Um, you know, if, if we can represent the whole of golf in Australia in these discussions, then people have to listen. There's no there's no choice. So I think that, you know, I think that's been been very powerful and uh, as a part of Golf Australia's Vision, Vision 2025. Um, part of that has been, you know, the marketing of golf and, in Australia. Um, and I think that, that that is where we'll have success is, 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 is one voice of golf um, and people have to listen. Yeah. 
it's important that that voice be uh, somewhat equal, isn't it? Though uh, what we don't want to see is the notion, which a lot of people would probably posit, that the Australian PGA will just swallow up the ALPG, and in fact, all the ALPG will do is get dragged along with the PGA's agenda, whether it's best for the ALPG players or not. That's the danger, isn't it? Um, it's not the danger from where I'm sitting. Um, you know that the intention is very much that we will keep our own organisations separate, but we'll work together for the good of the game. Um, and like I said, it's it's not just Golf Australia and ourselves, it's it's the other golfing bodies as well as part of the Australian Golf Industry Council. Um, and, and I have to say that one of the positives to come out of COVID um, has been the collaboration within the industry through these really tough times. And I know there's been, you know, a lot of criticism about the way, um, the way some things were handled in golf during the early parts of COVID. But I think being, being um, on the inside, seeing what people have had to deal with, um, I think that the industry bodies have done a great job in, in dealing with it. And obviously golf now is, is thriving in a lot of places. So um, I think that that collaboration, and I have to take my hat off to Rob Armour, who came in as the interim CEO of Golf Australia. I think he did a fantastic job in, in dealing with everything. And he's been, um, you know, myself and Gavin Kirkman and, and, and Rob and, and the heads of the other um, industry bodies have been working really close together. Um, so I think that, again, I think that's really important. I think that, and I think that's been a criticism of golf in over the last few years, certainly I've heard a lot, is there's so many, so many different organisations, so many people and nobody works together. Um, but that's definitely changing, um, and certainly the game will benefit from that, I've no doubt. Uh, two things to finish up. New Golf Australia CEO announced this week, James mm-hmm. Sutherland. Do you know him? Have yep. you met him? Cricket, you share a passion for cricket, obviously. <laughs> There'll be a, you'll probably get into a lot of meetings and you'll take you half an hour to get to the golf because you'll be talking about the cricket first. Uh, thoughts yeah, on prob- that? probably. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that on face value, it seems a great appointment for Golf Australia. Um, I know um, James actually has a daughter, Annabelle, that plays as part of the Australian women's cricket team. So he's probably passionate about women's sport, I would imagine, um, having seen his daughter grow up and and probably face some of the challenges we all have. Um, So, yeah, obviously time will tell. But um, like I said, on face value, it seems a a great appointment. Obviously, he's very well respected in sport. He's very well connected. Um, So, yeah, and we, we certainly wish him all the best. Yeah, you certainly got that experience in terms of professional golf with big business sponsorship, what you can have, all of those sorts of things. He brings a lot of experience there, which will certainly be a positive. We know golf's a different animal in so many other ways, but our Australian Opens are so important that that part of the job is obviously critical for him as well. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was, I've been banging on about this since I heard it for the first time last year, this is how ignorant I am, I'd never heard the term before, can't see it, can't be it, Uh particularly for young girls and women. I got the sense from when you were speaking earlier there wasn't a lot of being able to see it for you and Marty. You still sort of got there, but just maybe talk about the importance of that and, and what you see as the role for ALPG, PGA, Golf Australia, all of us, and us in the media, in fact, all of us who are part of the golf family, for making sure that everybody in golf can both see it and be it. And that's true for both boys, girls, people with disability, uh, everybody, because it really is the one sport that everyone can play, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, and and that is absolutely one of the responsibilities we have, and certainly in terms of, of women and girls in sport, um, they have so many different options now to, to when I was young. As I spoke about earlier, there was, you know, swimming, netball, hockey, um, perhaps basketball, athletics. Now girls can play every sport, which is fantastic. I wished I had have had those options when I was a kid, but it also makes it more difficult for our sport to keep girls engaged in golf. 
Um, and there's a lot of research out there that says, you know, girls want to play sport with their friends. They like being in that team environment. So uh, AFL cricket. Um, and you see the role models out there in, in those um, in those sports. And I think those sports are doing a great job in promoting the, the role models. So we have that responsibility to be to be putting in Minjis and Hannahs and, and that out there because if they can't see that there's a pathway from them playing golf as a junior to, to being that star, then you know, they're probably going to go off and, and want to be an Elise Perry or a, a Sam Kerr or, you know, I don't know the AFL women players as well because uh, I'm the rugby league girl. So, um, <laughs> That's a different game. But, but... Yeah, but, you know, uh, you, 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 there's so many role models in, in women's sport um, and we have to make sure that we're promoting them and, and the guys as well, you know, the same thing. There's a lot of choices out there for them to make and, and we have to, you know, there's a lot of research says that the, the My Golf Girls program has been really successful and the challenge is to keep keep those girls playing golf through, you know, their teenage years when there's obviously, you know, a lot of things going on for teenage girls and boys and a lot of different choices and, and other distractions. So that's the challenge we have. But the can't see, can't be is absolutely critical. Um, and, you know, you look at you, the group that we've got now that we've spoken about, Minji, Sue and Hannah, our, our leading three players, um, at leading three younger players, up-and-coming players, they've had Kari as their role model right through. Um, and she's been very involved in their lives. And, and, and that group now, which I think Hannah's doing a superb job of, the stuff she's doing at Mount Lawley in Western Australia during COVID, um, you know, out playing golf with these kids, it's just so valuable because they're going to all want to be like Hannah Green. Of course. Um, and I think that, you know, we all need to be promoting to, you know, our players, absolutely. Including, interestingly, at Mount Lawley, I'm sure, the boys. If yeah, you're an 8, 9, 10, 12, 14-year-old boy, and there's a major winner right there turning up weekly to play at the club. My goodness, you can't you can't buy that. No, yet. absolutely. Just absolutely. Yeah. We've got the sneaky advantage in golf, Karen. All of those women that you named from the cricket team and the soccer team and Ash Barty, they all love their yeah. golf. So we can yeah, tap absolutely. into their ex- – yeah. they can do all the hard work and we can just tap into that and just get them out on the golf course and film it, and we've got, uh, we've got some advantages there. That's right, yeah. Been fantastic to catch up. You've been more than generous with your time. You always are. I've always enjoyed chatting to you over the years. It's been fantastic too, to to have been a nice great. long chat for the the golf fans of Australia. Been terrific to catch up. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. Thanks, Rod. There's an old saying in Australia that you can take the person out of the bush, but you can't take the bush out of the person. And I think that anyone who knows her would agree that Karen Lunn epitomises that cliche. Well, I hope you've enjoyed episode 26 of the show, and I hope even more that you've taken the time to subscribe. Because on episode 27, we're going to hear from a man who has seen up close some of the very best golf ever played. When we meet career caddy, Dean Hurden. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.